May grace and peace be multiplied to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. The text of our meditation this morning comes to us from that 19th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, which we just heard a moment ago. And though it's really a two-part reading, we'll focus more on the first half of it from verses 41 through 44. And this is the account of Jesus' weeping over the city, his weeping over Jerusalem. We hear those words. And when, you draw, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Our first learning objective this morning is to understand why Jesus is crying, what kind of tears he's weeping. Then our big learning outcome we'll be striving for by the end of the message this morning will be to consider the weight and the meaning of Jesus' last words in this passage today. And they are, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we'll really focus on that word visitation, its full impact this morning. As always, we proceed in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our gospel text this morning is challenging and maybe even a little bit awkward for us because we have some real human emotion going on in the moment by our Lord Jesus. Tears cried over the city of Jerusalem. Righteous anger in the temple. In order to gain insight, we definitely need a little bit more context before us. So our text is late in St. Luke's Gospel, if you're counting the chapters. It's during Holy Week, at the very beginning of Holy Week. Only Matthew and Luke record Jesus' weeping over Jerusalem in this instance. But this moment is very closely located and affiliated with two other events that are captured by all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and therefore, that's an important moment when we got four of a kind, all four Gospels attesting to it. Mark, or St. Luke, has the weeping over Jerusalem by Jesus wedged between these two events that are in all four Gospels, the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday and the cleansing of the temple, which is part of our reading this morning as well in Luke, but also presented in those other Gospels as well. So in order to understand why Jesus is crying and what kind of tears he's crying, we need to back up and re-examine the triumphal entry just a little bit because it sets a tone that's important for us this morning. And in particular, the way that the triumphal entry is really a climax of a sequence of events that come before it. So earlier in Luke 19, Jesus sends disciples ahead to secure the colt, the donkey, that he's going to ride into Jerusalem upon. We know this account very well, but there's a lot more to it than it seems. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. It's important. It's important for two reasons. First, it is a direct fulfillment of a prophecy. Second year confirmation students, I told you I would quote from the book of Zechariah. Here it is. Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So it is a direct fulfillment of that prophecy. Secondly, and this is kind of a deeper level to it this morning, that we have to consider a broader context of. 
Secondly, this is nonverbal, symbolic communication given by Jesus. Jesus is sending a message by how he rides into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. In that moment, he is the king mounted on this humble beast. The donkey isn't just used to convey humility and lowliness. We usually concentrate on that, and that's true. That is one of the purposes of it, but that's not the big purpose. In the ancient Middle East, throughout the Mediterranean world as well, the way kings appeared before the people was important. It sent a political and social, sometimes a spiritual message. Kings sending a message of power, wanting to convey that they were there to make war, to execute harsh justice, to settle scores. They did that by coming into town or being portrayed in art, on friezes, in sculptures, on frescoes, riding a mighty war, war horse on horseback. They came mounted on their war horse, or even more powerfully, behind a quadriga for a combat chariot that was hauled by four stallions. You've been to Berlin. Think about the Brandenburg Gate. That's an ancient symbol of power that we see there. Imagine that for a moment. That's how the mighty king would arrive. So Jesus appearing before the people mounted on the humble donkey is a sign of his humility, his lowly estate. But it also sends a different kind of message about the type of king and the type of Messiah that he has come to be. Jesus is the king who doesn't bring war, who doesn't settle scores with harsh justice in the way the people were expecting. He is the king that comes to bring vindication. He is the king who declares peace. Peace on the cosmic level between God and man. Think back to the Christmas story. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Declare of cessation of hostilities between us and God. He is there to pronounce that the warfare has now ended between God and man. Again, a good Advent hymn sums that up, right? Tell them now our warfare is ended. He rides on a humble donkey, sure enough, but not just to appear humble and lowly, but to declare the ceasefire between us and God. This is a visual image. It's a symbolic image of the triumph of mercy and reconciliation over wrath and judgment. And so on Palm Sunday, the people respond. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people respond rightly at this moment in time. But they respond for the wrong reasons. They respond in a way that misses the point. They miss the visual symbolic message that Jesus is sending. Or best, they kind of get it half right. Even though the people rightly erupt with praise, it's misinterpreted praise. And it's fickle praise. It's transient, temporary praise. Why do we know this? Because we know that in only a few short days... All that acceptance and acclamation of Jesus will turn into rejection. By Good Friday, many of these same people will be shouting, crucify him. There's a reason for this. Why does that change happen in a few days between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? 
This is because the people are still in love with the king who comes on horseback or behind the mighty war chariot. The king who comes to bring war against their enemies. The king who comes to settle scores with wrath and with vengeance and power and persuasion and everything we deem to be dynamic and effective, not only in that time, but in our time as well. The people are in love with that still. They are in love with that image of the Messiah because they've been brought up with it, raised with it. The mighty king who will vanquish their oppressors with power, with immediate justice, he'll intervene. They want what we would call the standard Messiah that they've been taught about since birth. The stock Messiah, we could call him. On Palm Sunday, they're briefly happy because they're able to make Jesus fit into this template of the Messiah that they already want, that they're preconditioned to want. And Jesus knows this, dear friends in Christ. This is why immediately after this account of the triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't revel, sit back, and enjoy the acceptance and the acclamation of the Hosannas. Instead, he does the opposite. He's driven to tears immediately. We're told he looks out over the city, or looks out over Jerusalem, and he cries. Our Lord cries real tears at that time. Now, there's other reasons. We could call it a bundle of reasons why Jesus cries here. It could also be the sheer gravity of him realizing that his quest, his mission is about to come to fulfillment and having the full weight of that situation come into his consciousness at that time. The epic culmination of his mission is beginning. It's at hand, and he's sensing that. He could be sensing the weight of what's unfolding, but he also weeps in lament, in sorrow, that Jerusalem and the city, Jerusalem here stands in for all of humanity, your friends in Christ. He weeps in lament that they don't understand what's going on. And he says those words we heard a moment ago. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So that kind of gives us a different take on these acclamations of peace on earth that they're giving. Hosanna in the highest, peace to the king who comes. He's saying, what that you knew, why? You got the right response to me today, but for the wrong reasons. You've misinterpreted it. He says, now they're hidden from your eyes. This is immediate. This is right after the triumphal entry. Jesus is also crying tears of frustration here. Frustration that Jerusalem could and should understand what makes for peace, but doesn't out of stubbornness, which Jerusalem has done for ages before. It is the city that kills the prophets that are sent to it again and again and again. Jesus laments this with tears of frustration, maybe even a little bit of anger. Jesus is also crying tears of sadness at the same time. It's as if he's saying, Jerusalem, you just can't understand. Maybe it's because you're stubborn and you never do, or maybe it's just the way it is. Alas, you won't and you can't. You don't know what makes for peace. That's how it's been and how it always will be. So Jesus cries tears of both lament, sadness, and also frustration because Jerusalem missing the point on Palm Sunday at that very moment, that's important, but this has also been building up. It's a sequence of events captured throughout all the Gospels, but especially in Luke over a 10-chapter period, going back to Luke 9. The triumphal entry and them missing this and him weeping over it is just the climax of what's been building for 10 chapters. Starting back at Luke 9, if we look back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he starts out looking 
like that standard Messiah, like that stock Messiah that the people are anticipating and wanting to see. He does the things they would expect a Messiah to do. He preaches, yeah, we want the Messiah to do that. He teaches, yeah, we expect the Messiah to, to, to drop some knowledge, to bring some teaching as well. And he does so with authority, even more. Still a very messianic thing. He performs miracles, gives us powerful signs, causes the lame to walk, the blind to see, heals the lepers, all of those things. Those are great. Casts out demons, even more. The people flock to those powerful actions of Jesus, to this Messiah. Ultimately, this culminates in the feeding of the 5,000, where after that, if you remember, he has to flee and leave because they are ready to proclaim him a powerful earthly king, a king mounted on a stallion before, of, behind a war chariot who comes in power. They're ready to do that, which, of course, is not the Messiah he came to be. So starting in and around Luke 9, we have a big change in tone. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. Things change. The preaching, the teaching, the actions of Jesus all change. Go back in your own personal devotions and read through these 10 chapters I did over these last couple weeks. You get a crazy tone to Jesus that we're not used to when we read it. It's very firm. It's very stern. He's trying to convey a very different message. His teaching and his actions transition here. He starts not to sound like that stock Messiah, like that standard Messiah that they've been raised to expect. He starts to say things that make people skeptical or even outright hostile to him. Many fall away, we're told. They're not drawn to him anymore. They start to fall away. Those who do stay faithful to him at this time also don't equally understand the true nature of the Messiah Jesus is called to be. They're doing the right thing by staying faithful, but again, like the people on Palm Sunday, they don't know really why. They know later. The big part of Jesus' teaching that they can't understand that changes at this time or embrace is what we can summarize with a mathematical formula. Just what you want to hear on Sunday, right? Six times L plus D. Don't try to figure that out with uh, algebra. Okay, we'll break it down for you. This is the teaching of Jesus that they cannot accept. He's going to talk about how the engine that drives grace and mercy is done so by six L's, by losers, least slash little, last, lowest, lost, and then ultimately that D is for dead or for death. Six L's in a D. Jesus sets up these themes as the way the true Messiah, the Messiah that he has come to be, saves humanity. And it's not like anything that they've heard before, ever, preached, taught, or written about. It's just totally new to them, and they can't get their heads around it. The next ten chapters of Luke are full of these themes of 6L plus D. Loser, one who loses. Think of it that way, not loser, right? The one who lets go of stuff and loses stuff and is okay with that. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Think later about the rich young ruler 
that comes to him asking what he needs to do. I've done it all. One thing do you lack? Give away all that you own. Let go. Lose all those things that you have. We're told that young man goes away upset and sad for he had many possessions that he couldn't let go of and lose. Least. Luke 9, 46 tells us, an argument arose among them as to who was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, and it says, put him by his side. Although this is a gender neutral in the Greek, it can be male or female. A lot of scholars contend that Jesus would have put a female child in their midst to make an extra point, because in that patriarchal culture, women were seen as property, and young women and girls were ascribed very little value in that culture. And he would have made a great point by putting a female child in their midst. Say, be like this child. It would have been shocking to them to hear that. It would have been new. It would have been a statement about being the least. And that's what you need to be. He took that child. He put that child by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Little also goes with that as well. Luke 18 says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And then when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. They still didn't get that lesson. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little least child shall not enter it. And then he turns to the last. Stop striving to be number one. Check your ambition. And behold, some who are last will be first. And some who are first will be last. We can think about those laborers in the vineyard all getting the same wage. The early birds, the go-getters, the ladder climbers at the office there before the clock even starts working in a full day. How dare these guys that show up in the 11th hour get paid the same wage? What a shock. Many who are last shall be first. Many who are first shall be last. Lowest. Jesus says, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when the host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, turning it on its head. These are people that paid for the good seats at dinners, in the synagogue, in the temple. This turns on its head the wisdom of their time and their day and ours. And finally, that brings us to lost, the last of our L's, which segues perfectly into dead. Jesus saying, the way to life is through death. In Luke 15, we got an escalation of three parables. Parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then it finally culminates with the prodigal son. In the prodigal son, there's at least, there's lost going on there. Plenty of it, right? A son that wanders off lost into the world. But there's death too. May not see it at first, but there's at least three distinct deaths going on in the parable of the prodigal son. The father, the dad figure, the whole thing starts when the younger son says, give me my inheritance. Put your will into effect. What does it take to put a will into effect, guys? Death. Dad, drop dead to me and give me my, ha- my inheritance. Father doesn't hesitate. He drops dead. He, he is one who loses. He lets go. 
even though it's not just, it's not right, could have invoked his fatherly privilege, but instead he said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll drop dead to you, son. Here it is. I loose it to you. That's one death. The son goes, squanders, finally loses. He has to lose it all, a loser, to finally get it and to begin that process, right? The process of grace has to start with him being loosed of all that stuff he thought he needed to live with and to ultimately die to who he is, to come back and say, no, I should be a hired hand, not even your son. Of course, the father says, no, you'll always be my son. But he's died a death. This is all unlike the older brother who refuses to die, who refuses to be one who loses. Instead, he wants to cite regulations. Now everything is unfair and unjust and not according to the regulation. Rightly so. He wants to be a lawyer about it with his father. To which the father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. At least one or two of the L's and the dead going on there. It's a climactic parable in Jesus' new way of teaching the Messiah that he is here to be and to proclaim. There's a third death, too, if you want to see it that way, and that's the fattened calf. Hey, you know, that's kind of a good one. Big celebration. Even the calf dies. All of these go hand in hand with Jesus' three predictions that he must die, which happens at the same time in these chapters of Luke, from Luke 9 to our point today in Luke 19. And a Messiah dying is not standard Messiah stuff. It's not stock Messiah stuff. Messiahs don't die. They vanquish. They conquer. They bring in a new era. That's what the people are waiting for. None of this Messiah's got to go and die stuff. So they don't want to hear it. We get three predictions of Jesus' death during the same time as he's going through the six L's and D um, with his teaching. His first prediction in Luke 9, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is alien stuff to their ears. They don't want to hear it. We know they're hostile to it. Death number two. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, guys. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying because it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And finally in Luke 18, and this is getting late in our gospel, coming up on where we're at today. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Luke tells us that they understood none of these things. These are these inner circle. These are those who are still with Jesus, not falling away, and they don't get it. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Hidden from them to this design, sure, but hidden from them because they're so in love with that stock standard Messiah template, just like everybody else, and they don't want to hear it. We know that. The people don't. They can't bear to hear about this kind of Messiah. And so they reject the things that they should grasp. They reject the things they should cherish. But they latch on to and won't let go of the things that they should let go of and lose. This is why Jesus really weeps over Jerusalem this morning, dear friends in Christ. 
So our text concludes today with a prophecy right on the heels of him weeping over the city. Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. We want to conclude today by really taking a look at the word visitation here and what this means because we think we have the full meaning. There's a deeper level to it. In one sense, this prediction is exactly what we think it is. It's judgment. In another deeper sense, it's not. It's actually about grace and mercy. It's full gospel. How can that be? This is a prophecy that does come to pass. In a few years after Jesus ascends into heaven, when Jerusalem is laid siege and the temple is destroyed, that happens. It's very descriptive, very predictive. But we miss the most important if we misread the last line about not knowing the time of your visitation. We tend to think that Jesus here is simply saying, in that hour, destruction will be visited upon you. Suddenly, without warning, you'll fail to see it coming. That time will be the time of wrath and judgment being visited upon you. We usually go that way when we read that passage. That's true. That's how it comes to pass. It does come suddenly when that day comes. While there's an element of truth to that, it's not the greater truth to that last line, though. The time of visitation isn't the same time as the day of destruction that Jesus is predicting here. We tend to conflate them and make them into one thing, but they're not, dear friends. Remember the image of our Messiah and King, the one who rides on the donkey, not to proclaim war, not to proclaim harsh justice, but instead peace and vindication. He doesn't ride in on that warhouse to met out harsh justice. The Greek word translated, our last word, visitation, we usually translate it as such into the English. The Greek word is episkopes, and that ought to sound familiar. It is. It's the same root word that we, where we get episkopos from. And episkopos means bishop, one who is in a high-ranking position in a church body, but also overseer. An overseer is important because overseer has great connection and connotation with the idea of a gracious shepherd as well. Go to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 25. 1 Peter, five-little chapter book. It was an early catechism for the early church. St. Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You have now returned to the visitation person, the visitor that gracious shepherd of your souls. It's the same word, to the episcopos of your souls. Thus, dear friends, the time of visitation for Jerusalem is the time of the overseer, the good and gracious shepherd. It's not that day of wrath and vengeance Jesus foretells when Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. This is the time of the visitation, and Jerusalem stands in here for all humanity, by the way, even us. It is that moment of visitation that they and we didn't know or actually recognize on Palm Sunday, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. That same day that he weeps over Jerusalem, that same day that he cleanses the temple in righteous anger and frustration and sorrow and is driven to tears looking out over Jerusalem. 
Jesus weeping over that city because he looks out and he sees them not knowing the time of his gracious visitation. They're failing to see it in real time right then and right at that moment. That day is happening then, the day of visitation, and they don't recognize it. That's the power of that last line this morning. That's why Jesus is upset. And yet there is grace, mercy, and gospel throughout that last line, dear friends in Christ, because we know it doesn't end there. We know that what the great visitation of our overseer and shepherd accomplishes. Of course, in the end, Jesus' divine oversight, his divine visitation will triumph. The new Jerusalem, we're told in Revelation 21, the new earth, the new heavens, will all come down out of God adorned as a bride for her husband. And that's important because we're told about crying and weeping. We think about Jesus' tears. We think about our tears. He cried like us out of frustration, anger, sorrow, just like we do. We got words in the last book of the Bible about that day. While Jesus weeps for Jerusalem in our gospel reading in Luke 19, in the new Jerusalem, it's not that way. We're told a very different image. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. We can infer from that that Jesus ain't crying either at that moment, okay? The time of tears has passed. Neither shall there be mourning, neither shall be, there be crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the ultimate day of visitation. In the meantime, we have a foretaste and the feast to come that we'll celebrate shortly. Today we have our overseer coming to see us and visit us with his grace, his mercy, and with his word of love for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.